Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? even after I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak into our lives from the scriptures. Would you just join me in praying for a second? Father God, thank you for your presence with us. And thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit to a place of understanding and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a national skill that is ingrained in most people who grow up in England, and I dare say actually the whole of the UK, and it is a skill to talk about the weather. If you ask anyone in England or you meet someone, a complete random stranger, you can talk about the weather. I reckon by the time of the age of 12, this is a skill that you've picked up. And it's an ideal subject to talk to anyone about because we've all got an opinion about the weather. Secondly, no one really knows what's going to happen in the weather tomorrow. Thirdly, it's inconsequential most of the time in any event. And most important of, of all, you're not giving anything away about yourself at all when you talk about the weather. I was thinking, by the end of our life, 
If you totted up all the minutes of your life that you talked about the weather, I reckon we'd have spent at least a whole day on it. Well, why do I begin like this? Because there are other topics that lie at the opposite extreme. Topics that we very rarely talk about, ever. Topics that really do matter. And today's sermon is all about one of these topics. It's a conversation that Jesus has with his closest friends. We, we've been journeying through some chapters in John's Gospel, and they lead up to Easter Day, and before that, Good Friday. In other words, the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus is now talking to his friends about his death that is impending. I'm not sure that I've ever met anyone who finds it easy to talk about death, their own or anyone else's. It's very challenging to do this. And I have in my mind, as I prepared this talk, a couple of conversations that I have really never forgotten. One, one happened when I was just beginning my training to be a clergy person, clergyman. Because believe it or not, you do get some training. You don't just wake up one day and you are one. And part of this training was to sit in the shadow of a hospital chaplain in Oxford. And um, we we're just beginning this course and he's talking to a small group of us and he's telling us about a conversation that he has had very recently with a patient in a hospital. And the patient evidently knew that he was dying and turned to this chaplain and said, I'm going on a long mystery journey. And as the chaplain reported this story to us, he said he replied, yes, I know you are. Or he may have said it slightly differently, but that's basically what he said. Yes, I, you are. And when I heard the chaplain telling us that story all those years ago, it struck me as that's not the right answer. That's very, very, very far short of what Jesus says about death. He doesn't say when you die, you go on a long mystery journey. And it's, it's always stuck with me, that conversation that the chaplain had. But now we can fast forward to another situation and this happened about eight years ago, this coming August, and now I am the one in a hospital at the bedside of someone who is dying. And my sister is with me, and the person in the bed is our mother. And she is dying, there's no question about it. The only question is how soon. And for three days, we sit in the same room, both my sister and I completely out of our depth and completely out of our comfort zone. And I dare say that went for my mother as well. And I know the conversation that I want to have, but it's a conversation there is no way of having. And there hasn't been an opportunity to have this conversation over any number of years. Why not? Because I know my mother. And like many people, all her life she's gone to great lengths to avoid the whole issue of death. In fact, she's even manufactured a vocabulary that avoids facing it. So we all know in our family that if, if someone looks dangerously ill, my mother will sometimes say, I wouldn't be surprised if something nasty were to happen. And we all know what that means, but no one names it. And the same was her attitude when she went into hospital. 
She told the consultants, if it's bad news, I don't want to know about it. So as we sit there for those three days, we're in collusion with one another. We don't go near this territory. And what we were doing then is what a great many people do. We push death into the wings, into the margins, and we just hope it will go away. And I suppose we could summarize this way of tackling it as just avoidance. It's much easier to disengage than to engage with this topic somehow. Now, this talk needs lightening up, so I'm going to tell a joke. But it's, it's an illustration that does actually apply, really. So, so there's a story about some people who are in an old-fashioned aircraft, and it's one of those aircrafts which has propeller engines. It's got four of them. And as they're flying across the channel, there was a kind of cough and a splutter, and one of the engines stops. And the, the pilot comes over the intercom, and he says, I'm so sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but we've had engine failure. One of our engines is down, and that means that we'll be arriving half an hour late. Everyone sort of shrugs their shoulders. And then a little bit later on, another coffin splatter from the other side of the aircraft this side. And down goes another engine. And on comes the pilot on the intercom. He says, I'm so sorry, ladies and gentlemen, as you've probably observed, now a second engine's gone down. We're going to be an hour late. And a wag at the back of a plane shouts out, well, I do hope another engine doesn't go down or we'll be up here all night. And I, I think... That's sort of our approach to this topic. But it won't wash and it, it won't do. I think what those hospital conversations brought home to me were a number of things. Number one, this is a topic that is relevant to us all. Because we all get to die. It, it's something, you know, it's fair. Everyone does it. So, so this is a topic that has relevance to us all. Secondly, those hospital conversations showed me there is a good times and more difficult times to have a conversation about this. And actually, when you're in your last days, that's not the easiest time to consider this subject. And now, when the majority of us are sitting comfortably in church, that this is as good a time as any to open our ears to what God might want to say about it. And thirdly, as Jesus appreciates, we need to tackle this subject because it will completely change our whole outlook on life and the way we do life. Sometimes when I'm on holiday with my wife, Liz, and we're both sitting down, and it just might be that we're reading a book. Not the same book, different books. And I will catch Liz um, thumbing the end of a book when I know she's only just begun it. And I'll say, you're cheating. What are you doing? You're going to ruin the whole book. And she says, no, you just don't understand, Rupert. Once I know there's a happy ending, I'm able to enjoy the rest of the book. And, and there is a certain kind of, uh, I can understand that. I get that. And once you and I understand that there is a, and can be a happy ending to the end of our life, that death is not a, a catastrophe because God has done something about it, once we are secure in that, it could set us free to actually get on with life as God wants and to really live it to the full. Jesus' approach to this topic is very different from avoidance. Very, very, very different. It, he offers an alternative way. And I, I would call uh, this sermon, actually, in retrospect, 
I would call it a life-giving conversation about death. And it's a conversation that we need to have. Now, you had the passage read to you from John chapter 14, and it just helps to know that Jesus is talking to his closest friends here. And it's like a private conversation, and he's concerned for them because he knows that his own death by crucifixion is imminent. And they've been following him and walking with him um, day by day, day by day, day by day for three years. And he wants them to be furnished with reassurance as his death gets nearer. So if we begin at the very first verse of John chapter 14, and we pick up what Jesus says, he says, he starts off like this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, if you'd never read this passage before and you hadn't a clue what Jesus is about to say, you might make a guess. And the kind of guess that you might make, if it was in line with how a lot of people deal with this topic, when eventually they do, might be this. Don't let your hearts be troubled because death is nothing at all. Death is nothing to worry about. In fact, there is a simply horrendous poem that goes, death is nothing at all. It doesn't count. Nothing has happened. And I want to say that is not a biblical view. In fact, it's not actually true to most of our experience. If anyone says death is nothing at all, they're in deep denial and they're out of touch with reality or they haven't ever been close to someone who's died who they love. I can't put it better than a man called Nicholas Westerhoff. He happens to be a professor in America. But after his son died, he wrote an article called Lament for a Son. And I'll read you a little bit of it. What do you say to someone who's suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom. For such, one is profoundly grateful. But not all are gifted and they blurt out strange, inept things. That's okay too. Your words don't have to be wise. The heart that speaks is more than the words spoken. But if you can't think of anything to say, just say, I can't think of anything to say but I want you to know that we're with you in your grief. But please, don't say it's not really so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you don't sit with me in my grief, but you place yourself off in a distance from me. Over there, you're no help. I need to hear you're with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. I know. People do sometimes think things are more awful than they really are. Such people need to be corrected gently, eventually. But no one thinks death is more awful than it is. It is those who think it's not so bad that need correcting. And that view is actually much more in line with the scriptures. Scriptures call death the last enemy to be destroyed. So Jesus is not going to lead us up the garden path. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled because it's no big deal. Not at all. He came, though, to free us from this fear of death and dying. 
John Mortimer, who's the author and creator of Rumpel of the Old Bailey, spoke about his own life like this. He said, life is one long effort not to think about death. And there are people who know that struggle. And not thinking about it is not Jesus's cure. He doesn't say, don't let your heart be troubled, simply don't think about it. Because that wouldn't work. It'd be like me saying to you, don't think about spinach. You were not thinking about spinach until I said, don't think about spinach. It, it just, it's axiomatic that when you're told not to do something, it's the very thing that you do. Jesus gives us a very positive reason why we don't need to be troubled, and it's him. He says, the alternative to trouble is trusting. Trusting me. Putting your confidence in me because I will make all the difference in the world in this situation. Let's just uh, consider a little bit more about this whole idea of trust, because it's at the heart of the antidote to terror when it comes to death. We're all actually very good at trust. When you came into this church and you took your seat, you trusted that the chair would hold you up. And so far, it seems to have done that. And that's an exercise of faith that you didn't have any trouble with. When you, if you ever do, get on a bus or catch a taxi and you tell the taxi man where you want to go or the taxi driver where you want to go, you trust that they will take you where you've told them to go. It's, it's not a great high bar to trust them for that, but you do it. But some things require a greater element of trust. When you, if you ever go into a hospital and they're going to do an operation on you, you sign a consent form and, and it gives permission for them to pretty much do what they think is best for you when you're unconscious. And if it's some very complicated operation, let's say brain surgery, I would want to know a great deal about the surgeon I was trusting. I would want to know they were suitably qualified. That's a high level of trust. Not everything requires that level of trust. When you have a cup of tea and coffee at the end of this service, you don't need to know the name of the person who made it or their qualifications. Um, I don't think you do anyway, because it, it's a very low bar. But when it comes, here's the point. When it comes to trusting Jesus with my life, when I die, to give me everlasting life, I need a lot of evidence. That's a huge ask. That's massive. And evidently, that is what the disciples felt too. Can you trust him when he says this? In my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I am, in fact, going there to make a, uh, prepare a place for you. When he's saying that, he's claiming something really big. He's claiming to know what his father's house is like. How could he possibly know what heaven is like? And the answer is, actually, in, right the way through the New Testament and in the previous chapter of John, having come from God, he was returning to God, says John. He knows because he set off. He began his journey from the other place. God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. So he can speak with authority about what he knows about. It's as if we stood on the side of one 
riverbank, couldn't see the other side, and we just speculated what life was like or whether there was life or what goes on the other side of a riverbank. And it would be just pure speculation unless someone came to us from the other side and could speak with authority. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And there's something else in this conversation which is actually pretty riveting as well. He says, friends, if this were not the case, of course I would have told you what the case is, because I only speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, I, in the course of my life, I'm so used to people hiding things they don't want you to know that I, it doesn't take me by surprise. If ever you've written a job reference for someone, or if ever you've read a job reference, you quickly discover that it's an art form to not tell the whole truth. You just say, everyone's got nice things about them, so you just say the nice things and you miss out one or two crucial things. Or you cloak it in humour. You say, you'll be very lucky if you can get so-and-so to work for you. And they have to unscramble the cage. Uh, <laughs> but, but with Jesus, it's not like that. He can go face-to-face -face with the disciples and say, look, I've been absolutely upfront and frank with you about everything I've said. I've told you when trouble and hardship are coming your way. I've told you there's a price of following me. You pick up the cross to follow me. I've told you that in this world you'll have trouble. And now I'm telling you, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not the case, I would have told you that too. I conceal nothing. Well, Jesus places himself absolutely upfront and central as the solution to death and dying. He says he's going to go ahead of us, prepare a way for us, and come back and take us. And there's a lovely word which is used to describe Jesus in the book of Hebrews, and it's the word prodromos, which means the reconnaissance force. It's got two meanings. It means an advanced party. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's going ahead of us. And it also means an escort or a guide. And a good illustration of this is like a little tugboat that used to go ahead, apparently, of a larger boats in the port of Alexandra. And they, they were acting as a prodromos. They went ahead to show the way. And Jesus is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you when it comes to your death. A, I will have gone ahead of you, and B, I will walk with you and escort you to the way you're going. And he puts himself at the centre of the solution. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. At one time, uh, Liz and I used to be frequent visitors with our very young children to a place um, midway between Southampton and Salisbury called Poulton's Play Park. And um, if you were under the age of five, you could get into Poulton's Play Park free. But of course, you don't generally go with a birth certificate to a children's play park. So what they had was they had a little gate, and the gate was just a stick of wood. And if you could walk under this stick of wood without ducking, you got in free. Very easy, very effective. You know, sometimes it pays off to be short. And what Jesus is saying here is, the way into my father's house is through my death and resurrection. And you could imagine a cross-shaped gate. And if you could stretch out your hands and walk through the cross that Jesus has made for you, you too can know eternal life. Or you could think of it this way, when you go abroad 
and um, you hit customs, uh, and you have to walk through a gate to show whether you're carrying offensive things or not, and that kind of thing. But it's like you cannot walk into God's eternal home without leaving behind everything that is offensive to God. And the way that you do that is Jesus says, I'll take that off you, I'll take that off you, I'll carry it on the cross. And now you're equipped to go into God's company. And that's why you can trust and not fear. Well, it all sounds very fine and well, but it didn't go down very well with his friends. And Philip, the disciple, effectively says, I think this is a very tall order. You've got to give us some more proof than that. Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied, he says. You know, my level of trust is not enough for this. And Jesus, in this conversation, gives three good reasons why they should trust him more. Number one, he just stares at Philip, I imagine, and says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Haven't you cracked the code yet? I and the Father are one. Which is a remarkable thing to say. But he is consistently saying it. If you want to know what the father would do in any situation, look at what the son does. If you want to know what the father's opinion in any situation is, listen to what the son says. I and the father are one. The second thing he says is, and if that's not enough for you, listen to the words I speak, says Jesus. The words I speak, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the father living in me. That's actually why we take the time and trouble, isn't it, to listen to Jesus' words and to try and take them in and understand them. Someone said, statistically speaking, the Gospels are the greatest literature ever written. Jesus' words are read by more people, quoted by more authors, translated into more languages, represented in more art, set to more music than any other book or books written by anyone at any century in any land. They're the greatest words ever spoken. And the reason why they are the greatest words ever spoken is because they deal clearly, definitively, and authoritatively with the greatest problems, namely, who is God? Does he love me? What should I do to please him? How does he look at my sin? Where do I go when I die? No other person's words have the appeal of Jesus' words because no one else answers these fundamental human questions as Jesus answers them. And I think we often overlook that. You know, how, how many people are going to be quoting you and me in 2,000 years' time? Not many, I don't think. But we're still studying his words the whole world over. But Peter, I mean, Jesus rubs the point in to Philip even more. In verse 11, he says, and if this is not enough for you, what about the evidence of the miracles themselves? What about the things you've seen me doing? And I imagine him actually saying to Philip, hey, Philip, let's have a chat here. Let's just think through some of the stuff you've seen me do. Let's, let's think through the time when I told you that if you want to pay the, the tax that has to be paid, go down and pull out a fish and you'll find a coin in its mouth. Do you think every third fish has a coin in its mouth? That's a miracle, wasn't it? Or shall we talk about the time that we turned water into wine? How do you think I did that? Or shall we talk about the man born blind, that when I prayed for him, he got his eyes, eyesight back? 
Or shall we talk about the time that I prayed for that widow's son when he was already a corpse being laid out and about to be buried and he came back to life? Don't you begin to see the power behind the works I've been doing, Philip? I and the Father are one. You can trust me in this. And I imagine that Philip is thinking, yeah, that's not a bad CV. It's becoming a little bit easier to trust that if you can do all these things, you could raise me from the dead. Later, and I am cheating a bit here, but later, after Jesus has died on the cross, later, after he has been raised from the dead, the disciples themselves will have supreme confidence and go into the marketplace wherever they went and talk about death is not the end of your life because of the resurrection. And they do this with confidence because they've met the risen Lord. They've seen him come back to life and his body's got all sorts of quirks to it. He can walk into locked rooms, which is not normal, through when what that means he can appear from nowhere. And yet, his body was such that you could touch it. It wasn't like a phantom. And he could eat stuff. He could eat bread. It wasn't like a kind of ghost in that way. So it has similarities to a human body, but differences from a human body. But what they knew is he'd been raised to life. And we'll look at that more on Easter Day. But it's there as a trailer. This is where the conversation with Jesus is heading. And I want to end by just telling you about a third conversation I had. When I was uh, working in the southwest of England, at the end of a church service one day, a couple came forward for prayer. I don't think I'd met them before. He was in the army. That was very obvious because everything about him was incredibly ship-shaped. He had very shiny shoes. You could see a kind of shine from 100 yards. And um, his trousers were beautifully pressed. And they were a very well-turned-out couple. And as we asked, I asked them what they like prayer for. His wife said, well, William here looks very well, but actually he's been diagnosed with advanced cancer and he's got less than a year to live. So we prayed together. And um, I said to them, you know, if, if you um, ever feel you want to turn to me for help in the future, you know, do. And I, I think I gave him a, a visiting card. And the months went on. I don't think I saw much of them at all. And one summer's day, I was playing with our very young children in the garden, and the phone went, and um, <clears throat> it was uh, William's wife on the phone said, Rupert, would you come and visit us? William is now seriously ill, and um, he is having a, a lucid moment, and he's asked to see you. So as quickly as I could, I, I changed out of my um, kind of, the kid I was wearing in the garden and jumped in the car and started the four-mile drive to where he lived, praying furiously, um, God help, I'm, I'm so ill-prepared and out of my depth for this. Um, what, what happens now? And when I went into his house, um, his army quarter, the whole thing smelt of kind of medical stuff and I got into his bedroom and he was hitched into any number of machines. And it was quite difficult to find a place to perch myself. And I perched on the end of his bed, and I looked at this man who was so clearly extraordinarily ill. And I said to him, William, you're going to have to help me. 
because I, I've never been in this situation before. And he answered with the priceless words, Rupert, you're going to have to help me because I've never died before, which I thought was a very good start, actually. And I said to him, um, can I have your permission to speak to you very plainly about some words that Jesus spoke? And he said, of course, of course, by all means, do. And I spoke to him exactly on this passage, not in the same way, but I spoke to him about Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I explained why he didn't need to be troubled, but he could trust instead, and that God would forgive him from any of the shortcomings of his life, would walk with him for the whole of the rest of his life, and would walk with him through death into eternity. And I said, can you trust Jesus for this? And wonderfully, he said, yes, I can. And we prayed a simple prayer together. And the fear of death just left. You could almost sense it, that it's like fear left the room. And if Jesus was standing here, and in a sense he is, if Jesus was standing here, he would want you and me to know that he has pulled the sting of death. Yes, we can have fear of the whole process of dying, but we can have confidence that it's not the end of the story. We can be free to get on and live the life that he intends and plans for us. That is part of the good news of following Jesus. That is why this is a helpful conversation about death, a life-changing conversation. You can skip to the last chapter in the book and see, actually, it's the opening chapter of the next book. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. It sounds so inadequate to say that, but we thank you for sending Jesus. And we thank you that he disarms death and takes away its sting. And thank you that, Jesus, the advice you give us, the command you give us, in fact, not to let our hearts be troubled, it isn't flippant. But you give us an alternative to put our trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd stir up in us the ability to remember the power of a person who said, put your trust in me that you worked amazing miracles, that you spoke wonderful truths, that you lived the exemplary life above exemplary lives, that you died upon the cross and rose again for us. And thank you that you are to be our forerunner. You are the one who's gone ahead of us and you will come back to escort us. And as I think about these things, Lord, actually my heart turns from worry and anxiety to joy and relief that there's a great future ahead. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you teach us to celebrate in the life that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.